You are listening to the Rooted Podcast, the conversation advancing gospel-centered youth ministry. You know, IMDB pages are like Facebook pages. Anybody really can have one. Somebody asked, are you nervous about preaching? And I said, you know, uh, how bad could it be? It's a room full of youth pastors. So everybody knows what it's like to bomb a talk. (laughs) So would you turn with me to 2 Samuel 11? And I'm going to read... 1 to 5, 14 to 17, and the first seven verses of chapter 12. Let's read God's Word. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a beautiful, uh, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So uh, while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men of David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Going to uh, chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He, He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. That's God's word. Uh, In an episode from The Sopranos, old, I guess it's not an old TV show, 
episode of The Sopranos, uh, there's a uh, there's a, a scene where Carmela, Carmela's the the wife of mob boss Tony Soprano, and she lives in a very insular New Jersey community. Uh, really had never left that community, and in this episode, she, on a whim, decides to go to Paris with her friend. And so she's standing on this bridge, the Pont Alexandra, overlooking the Seine. And it's this very famous bridge that has all these gilded bronze statues on it. And she's staring at these statues. And her jaw is wide open. She's in awe. And she says to nobody, who did this? Why? She was so amazed. She, she was looking at something that had a sense of history and purpose and experience and beauty that somehow, some way, had just bypassed her. She'd never seen it before. And she needed to. As a staff, uh, every week we read through uh, a psalm and we pray together. And in a sense, we have the exact same experience. We look into the Psalms and we are constantly saying, we're seeing the truth and the beauty and the history and the wonder and the experience of the person that wrote that. We're saying, who did this? Who is this person who captures every human emotion, who knows the entire human experience, who who says like uh, Kathleen Kelly in that You Got Mail movie, who is Mr. 152 Insights into My Soul? Right? King David. David is. Why? Because David knows that a prayer life is not an abstract activity divorced from his daily life. Prayer flows out of your daily life. Prayer flows out of the victories and the defeats, the tragedies, the turmoils. And today, we're going to look at a a defeat. We're going to look at a turmoil. Uh, if you know the story of David, you know leading up to this, it's all glory. It's all great, right? He's plucked from obscurity. He becomes a household name. He becomes a legend in his own time. He experiences tremendous friendships. One decision after another, wise, wisdom, time and time and time again, until we get to this episode. And here is the David we don't want to see. This is the David we don't want to know actually exists. It's the end of the innocence, if you will. So today, with the seduction of Bathsheba and the murder of his good friend, Uriah the Hittite, we, David not only matches the sins of Saul, but he exceeds them. So David, we see, has the natural ability to... Um, deceive himself, and to betray those around him because first, he has the ability to betray God. Let's look at three things from this text. Let's look at the season of betrayal, the discipline of the heart, and the friend who sings. Season of betrayal, discipline of the heart, friend who sings. First, the season of of betrayal. So at the time of this story, David's not the boy running up to the front full of excitement eager to see what's going on in the battle. David is uh, no longer on the run. He's a, a mature man. He's a seasoned man. He's a settled man. Is this annoying? Is this too much? 
It's, it's annoying. Should I change? Should I use this? Come on, youth people, speak. Yes? <laughs> All right. All right. Sorry. Let's try that. All right. So, uh, he's a seasoned person. He's a settled person. What do I mean by he's a seasoned person? He's a person who's fought in great battles. He's won. Uh, he's in his prime. He's accomplished. He's, he's complex. He stands on his own. He's his own man at this point. He's also settled. Up until now, David has been on the run. His whole life, you know, since the time he was called, he's been on the run, but not any longer. He's, he's a settled person, uh, and he's secure. And the reason that we can see that, or one of the reasons we can see that, is that he has a rooftop terrace. Now, I live in New York City. We live in apartments about 400 square feet. We love outdoor spaces. We love rooftop terraces. And the people that have rooftop terraces are seasoned and they're settled. <laughs> they are people that it, they are people that, um, they're accomplished. They're blessed. Um, uh, it is a sign of, of uh, great achievement, right? It's a sign of rest. But it's also not without its dangers. Um, a rooftop terrace gives you all those things, but at the same time, it's a place of danger because, as you see in this picture, David is isolated and he's alone and nobody speaks into his life. There's a play uh, written by Harold Pinter called Betrayal. And the brilliance of, well, the play is about three friends who have an extramarital affair and their life comes unraveled. And the brilliance of the play is that it starts uh, at the end and tells the story backwards. And so it starts with the, the hollowed out relationships. It starts with the horror. And then it works its way back, scene after scene after scene. And what's interesting is that the audience, because you're watching it backwards, you know what happens. The audience knows more about what's happening than the characters themselves. So one, uh, one uh, critic says, uh, the audience knew no, no more about the unhappy fortunes of the characters than the characters themselves. You see the mistakes build on top of one another. Tiny, nothing gestures that build up and led to their ruin. A flirtatious party uh, comment at a party led to a cup of coffee, led to renting out a flat, led to a pregnancy, so on and so forth. The season of betrayal begins for David when he's alone and he starts making small and seemingly insignificant and unchecked decisions in isolation. So let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, In the springtime when the kings went off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. So when you and I read that, it doesn't mean that much for us. But when a, uh, first, when a person, ancient Near East, <coughs> would have read that, original hearer of that text, they would have read that and they would have thought two things. They would have first thought, kings of Israel do not stay home. A king of Israel was meant to fight alongside, with, and for their people. They're meant to go out to the battle, to lead the charge. So something's off with David. And of course, the whole cultural narrative 
the whole understanding of yourself as somebody who's from that culture was that their heart is deceitful above all things. There is no cure. Who can understand it? Right? So they're, they're putting those two things together and they're saying, David, he's alone. The season of betrayal, okay, David's mistake was that he went off to, David's mistake was that he thought the war was out there. David's mistake was that he thought the battle was way out there, but the truth was is the battle was being waged on that terrace within his own heart, right, in, right within him. Solzhenitsyn says, Christianity says it too, the line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, including David. Now, many people would look at this and go, well, when did it all begin? Is this a new thing for David? Not at all. Remember when David is first, when he, David is first called down to, to see about Goliath, to go down and feed, the, feed his brothers? He gets down there, and his brother says a very brotherly, older brotherly thing to him. He says, what are you doing down there? Who's got the sheep? I know why you're here. You're arrogant. Uh, he says, uh, I know the evil of your heart. You just came down here to see the battle. And I think the mistake is to say, he's just being an older brother. I think he's, he's absolutely right. He knows his brother, but he doesn't know that his brother's been called. He knows his brother's corruption. He doesn't know that his brother's been called to the front. And the life of David is one where you might say, he's always been corrupt, and yet he submits his corruption to his calling. He's always been corrupt. The human being is always corrupt, and yet the man of God, the person of God, submits their corruption to their calling. And he had a lot of help to do that, too. That's what the story of Jonathan's all about. Even Saul helped him do that at times. Right? Okay, so what the author wants us to see is that whether you're the king of Israel or you're, you are a youth pastor, living in isolation apart from community is spiritually very, very dangerous. Uh, Paul Tripp uh, wrote an article not too long ago, and he said... That he, he, he described the two things that he thought were the most dangerous uh, for Christians in terms of their spiritual growth. And he said, the privatization of our personal lives and expressive individualism stifle and stunt our growth in Christ. And he's, so he said, what is privatization of our personal life? It's that American, I'll say, American ideal that says, you can only come so far, but behind closed doors, what goes on behind closed doors is my right, it's my privilege. It's personal to me. My religion's personal. You do not have a right to ask me questions that make me uncomfortable. Right? Privatization of our personal lives. Expressive individualism. Expressive individualism is the idea that our emotions rule the day. If you are, if you are being true to yourself and you're being true to the community, then you're, being you're first being true to your emotions. And you have, the, you have the right, it's your duty to live them out. Your emotions are more important than anything else. And so he says these two things are, are the biggest hindrances to our, to our spiritual growth. He says, um, and then he goes on, he, he goes on to challenge the person who buys into this narrative. He says, are you like a person who's around people every day but lives a shockingly private life? 
I'd like you to consider these two questions with me. How many people really know you? I'm not talking about that casual acquaintance thing. When I, what I am talking about is how many people actually know the person inside of the public persona? How many people know the places where you are susceptible to temptation? How many people know the responsibilities that tend to overwhelm you or get you down? Is there anybody who really knows where you struggle every day? Are there people who know where the battle for your heart takes place? How many people really know you? Or do you live in relationships that you call friendships? You may even call them fellowship, but you live largely unknown. King David is the author of the Psalms. The Bible describes him uh, as a man after God's own, own heart. He was a very public person, and for a very specific season in his life, he led a very private existence for, for different various reasons. And there was nobody that would, was going to speak into his life. How are you doing? I think youth pastors have the best job at churches. If you are a, you know, you're like, you know, there's maybe you say there's different tiers of youth pastor, right? There's the one that has their complete trust and confidence of their senior pastor. Therefore, they don't ever have to talk. There's the one that's doing a pretty good job, trust them enough, her enough, that they just they fly under the radar. You don't ever have to have anybody dealing with you on a consistent basis, right? And then there's the youth pastor that, hey, I don't know what that kid's doing. I don't know what they're doing over there. I'm too busy to deal with him. All three scenarios are ripe for the picking. You have a, you have a terrace. We have a terrace of our own making. And we can look... We have a public persona that looks like we have things together, but we all know we have a very private life. And it, the, the, for, the more you're in ministry, the harder it can be for somebody to actually speak into it. <clears throat> so that's the first point, the season of betrayal. In the springtime, the kings went off to war. Here's, here's the point. Spiritually speaking, for you and I and for David, it's always springtime. Are we ready? Are we living alone? Point two, the discipline of the heart. So if it's always springtime and evil runs right down the middle of every human heart, how do we prepare for these seasons? How do we prepare for the heart? Um, I'll say we have to recognize the sickness of the heart and we have to treat the sickness. Recognize the sickness and then treat it. Cornelius Plantiga says three things that are very helpful to recognize this, the sickness. He says, you, he says you have to look at your gifts. He puts it three ways. Um, you know that your heart is sick because you'll see a perversion of your gifts. You'll see a pollution of your relationships. And then lastly, a poverty of gratitude. Okay, perversion of gifts. What does that mean uh, to have a perversion of gifts? Because of everybody has gifts, right? Gifts and talents given by God. Because of the nature of sin, our gifts and talents can become twisted and distorted. The nature of sin, right, is that our our, our hearts are turned inward. All of our gifts and talents, when they become polluted, they become about us. Okay? Um, uh, David had tremendous gifts. He was a man of vision, strategy. He was a musician. He was a leader. People naturally followed him. In this story, all of his gifts and talents, his training, his, his acumen, they all become about what? His own personal survival. Uh, the thing about this, about sin, is that it's so uncommon, it's actually quite boring. 
it doesn't matter if you read the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, you look at BuzzFeed or TMZ. This remarkable people do unremarkable things all the time. Why? Because of a perversion of their gifts. Second, pollution of relationships. When you pollute something, right, you add something foreign to it, something that it doesn't belong. And David, <coughs> so sorry, <coughs> David's relationships become, become, become polluted first, not first, they become polluted, we see most noticeable in his relationship with his kingdom. Uh, the kingdom doesn't become about him leading his people to God, it becomes about his own self-protection, right? Uh, Plantica begins to talk about idolatry, and I work at Redeemer, so I have to talk about idolatry at every talk. He's watching. (laughs) Not true. Uh, And Plantica describes idolatry as anything you put alongside God, right? Any good thing, anything that you put alongside God, and therefore you have divided worship. Another way to say it is a good thing can become an ultimate thing, right? Uh, another thing, a way to say it is you, you, you put something in the place of God, and therefore you begin to worship it. In this passage, we see David, uh, David begins to put good th- make good things ultimate things. What? Sex and his reputation. He sees Bathsheba. He cannot control his feelings. He cannot not express himself. And he falls prey to it. Second, sex, of course, is a good thing, right? But it becomes an ultimate thing for him. Second, it's his reputation. They sung songs about David. He was a hero the likes of which you and I probably don't understand. You know, it would be wrong to name a modern name to, to make some equivalence. They sung songs about David. He was a living legend, and he did not want those songs to be changed. He wanted them to be true, right? So he fell prey to worshiping his reputation, idolatry. Third, a poverty of gratitude. Gratitude comes about when you receive something from someone that you absolutely need, but that you couldn't have gotten yourself. Wherever grace is experienced, embedded in in that there is an imprint of gratitude uh, is left behind. Gratitude is the byproduct of grace, and for that reason, gratitude is at the center of the Christian life, or the center of the life of the, of, of the people of God. So what David, this is what the Lord God said to David. At the very end, what does Nathan say? He says, he quotes God, and he says, he sends a message from God, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. And what he's saying is everything that David had was given to him from from God. And one of the primary symptoms of the sickness of the heart is an inability to be grateful. He says, I gave you everything you have, said the Lord. At the heart of sin, David's sin is the inability to recognize God and be grateful no matter what the circumstance. Okay. All right. That's the sickness of the heart. How do you treat it? How do you deal with that? How do you treat the heart? Um, John Owen, in his book, Mortification of Sin, famously says a very chilling quote. That's why it's famous. 
He says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And what he means by that is he means to treat it. Put it under the microscope. Pay attention to it. Get radioactive with it, right? Treat your sin. Put your attention on it. And, and the more you put your attention on it, the more you work towards it, um, it begins to shrivel. It begins to get small. You begin, it begins to lose the power that it, sh- that it has over you. So how do you do that? He says you have to analyze your heart's deep ways. The idea is to know the heart of your heart. Know yourself so that you can treat yourself. Know the distorted life attitudes that you buy into. The idols, the lies, the triggering occasions. David built a war machine that no longer needed him to be present to destroy and to conquer. I'm just hypothesizing. What what effect does that have on somebody? When you're no longer needed to be the hero. Right? A triggering occasion that leads him to look for places where he can be a hero. Sinful places where he can be, have comfort and have control and have power. So what are the triggering occasions for you? Are there conversations in your week that you dread, that have to go well, and if they don't go well, then I'm going here, then I'm doing this, then I'm going to think this, that, and the other, right? Then I can't get out of bed in the morning. So what are your triggering occasions? What are the reasonings and the inner arguments that are going on in your head? What are the inordinate emotions, the thoughts, the words, the deeds that result? So he says, analyze your heart's deep ways and then gather material for, uh, for use in weakening sin. What he begins to say is, you need to know how you function internally and then you need to start constructing arguments so that, that those, those lies that we tell ourselves no longer have the power. He says, construct self-arguments and prayers from danger and guilt and evil. Think out the particular ways that Christ gives you what you have, uh, what you have been looking for elsewhere. Does that make sense? All right. Owen says, when, when you sin, don't be... Um, Owen says that when you sin, don't be so quick to, to run off and, and forget about it. Right? Don't be so quick to wash your hands of it and move on. He says, sit in it. Soak in the guilt of it. Allow yourself to really realize what you've done. And he goes into all this very descriptive language, like flicking the blood of Christ into his face. It's, a, it's an incredible book. It's an incredible book. And then he says, uh, don't be so quick to forgive yourself, but reflect upon the sin so that it becomes repulsive to you. He goes on, he says, so that you remember your sin's foolishness, how it leads me to make unwise decisions and stupid choices. You remember your sin's deceitfulness, how it blinds you to reality, who, who you really are and what your limitations are. He says, remember your sin's unprofitableness, how it always ultimately fails to, look, to deliver what it promises. Remember your sin's destructiveness, how it damages not only your soul and character, but it ruins relationships and other people in a way that cannot be wholly remedied. So discipline your heart. Make the sickness of your heart experience the radioactive truth about God. And then he says something interesting. He says, listen, if you don't absolutely know the love of God, 
You cannot do this exercise. It'll crush you. It, you a person cannot look at their sin and really be honest about it without knowing absolute assurance of God that you have his love and it can never be taken away. Otherwise, it'll absolutely crush you. So, that's uh, the second point. The third point, the friend who sings. Uh, so we're at a place where David has slept with his best friend's wife. Uh, he's killed his best friend, and rightly so, it would be right to just move away. He's, he's, it'd be right to just get out of his company. He's not worthy of anybody sending him anything. What's interesting is that throughout the passage, David is the one that's sending. He's sending people to do his bidding, right? He's just sending people all over the place. But now, God is the one who sends. And what does he send? This is so telling. He could send a judge. He could send a warrior. And David would be done. But he doesn't. What God sends says everything about his character. Everything about his intentions. He sends David a friend. Why? Because he doesn't want to smear his name. He wants to restore him. He wants to reconcile with him. So how does he do that? Uh, he sends him Nathan. He sends him a friend who knows him inside and out. And Nathan tells him a story. And the art is not in the story itself. It's that Dave, Nathan knows exactly what to say. He sends him a friend that knows the heart of his heart. And he makes David a tremendous listener. <coughs> we know that because when, after he tells this story, essentially, David sings. He comes to life. And what's the story? It's a story about uh, a rich man who has everything and a poor man who has nothing except for one baby lamb that he loves. And a traveler comes. And the traveler comes and says, I need to be taken in. Can you help me? Can you be hospitable to me? And of course, the rich man says, yes, of course I can be hospitable. But he takes nothing from himself, but he takes the one thing, the one thing that was most precious to the poor man. He kills it, very cold. He feeds it to the traveler. And of course, David is a shepherd. See, he knows the story to tell him. And David comes to life. He makes him a great listener. And then, and he says, and then Nathan, of course, catches him in the act. And he says, you are the man. You are the rich man for whom, uh, who for his own convenience stole from the poor man his most prized possession when you took Bathsheba. The Lord has given you everything, he's saying. He's made you rich. And the Lord has delivered you time and time again. And don't you know, David, that the Lord would have delivered you through this situation too? He will deliver you again. There are implications for sin, but he will deliver you. And David listens, and of course he repents, and he writes Psalm 51. You know what Psalm 51 is? It's somebody looking at their own sin, knowing the depths of their depravity, and building arguments about how uh, that his depths cannot, should not hold him down. And talk, speaking the truth about God into his sin that brings him to repentance. It's a wonderful way to think about the Psalms. 
constructed arguments to glorify God in spite of your sin. He writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. So David, Nathan makes David a great listener. How are we? Are we good listeners? Uh, Nathan is preaching to David, and David is sitting there, and he's thinking, this is a really good sermon about somebody else. Right? Uh, the truth for David and the truth for you and I is that every sermon is about you. It's about me. You and I are the man. I am the man, and God has sent a friend into our lives so that our hearts would sing, that our minds would be pulled out of our self-deception. Uh, and after receiving that, then and only then, after being humbled and corrected, are we prepared to pass along another sermon to somebody else? Uh, Eugene Peterson, who I wish I read him when I was a youth pastor. Peterson is a gold mine. Please, if you, if you don't read him, he, he writes really, he's, he's wonderful. He says this, maybe you'll see from this quote if you don't know him. Uh, he says, it's both easy and common to lose this focus to let the gospel blur into generalized pronouncements, boozy cosmic opinions, religious indignation. That's what David is doing in this story. He's listening to his pastor preach a sermon about somebody else. And he's getting all worked up about this someone else's sin, this someone else's plight. That kind of religious response is worthless. It's the religion of the college dormitory bull session, the TV spectacular, the talk show gossip. It's the religion of the moral judgmentalism, self-righteous finger-pointing, the religion of accusation and blame. The gospel is never about somebody else. It's always about you. We all need a Nathan in our lives. We all need to be a Nathan in someone else's life, but you cannot be a Nathan unless you've had a Nathan, and of course, the Nathan for all of us is Jesus Christ, all right? It's not a coincidence that in the book of John, when Jesus is about to be crucified, that he's walked out by Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate says what? He says, behold the man. See, you and I are the men with sin, but Jesus Christ is the man who became sin so that, so that we might become righteous. Jesus Christ is the rich ruler who, when a, uh, a traveler came passing through, he didn't steal from somebody else, but he gave his own, his very best. God the Father said, I will give you everything. I will give you my son to this traveler so that you can be provided for. That's why Jesus is called the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ is the king who knew the battle was out there and in here. He knew the battle was every bit as intense when nobody is looking, when no one is around, and spiritually speaking, was always prepared for you. Jesus Christ is the true king who never sends you out to battle alone, but he goes out there without you, achieves victory for you in spite of you. Why? So that though we may lose the spiritual battles, 
We cannot lose the war. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are the God who lays down his life for his sheep, that you go after the lost. We thank you, Lord, that you face down sin and death and you won. Lord, I pray for, for uh, I pray for each of us in this room as leaders that we that we have people in our lives that are speaking into our hearts and minds who are convicting us. I pray that we would all have a Nathan who changes our lives, who saves us from the pit and allows us to do the work that you have called us to do in spite of our corrupt hearts. Lord, I pray for the hundreds of kids and the families that are represented in this room. Lord, I pray that you would continue to bless these men and women so that your name would be glorified in the hearts and minds of those they lead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. To learn more about Gospel-Centered Youth Ministry, please visit our website at www.rootedministry.com. Music has been provided by High Street Hymns. You can access their music at www.highstreethymns.com. Alleluia, alleluia.